Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss the Madchester scene of the late 1980s and how a rock wave merger seemed poised to take over the world. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And I don't think I've been mentioning that I'm reading from the Generation Ecstasy extended remix for the 21st century. Ryan, are you ready for the 21st I, century? I am, and I am also reading a Generation Ecstasy extended remix for the 21st century. Excellent. We're all on the same page. And this week... We're going to Manchester, and I'm talking about Manchester and the scene when they tried to blend rave and rock. Or maybe it was rock was trying to take over rave and steal the shine. Did they steal the throne? I mean, it kind of the way that I look at this whole chapter and, and the way that Manchester keeps on getting rolled into the entire rave scene is is it's mostly a drug thing. And there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of producers and a couple of musicians that kind of rotate through. Uh, I mean, when you're talking about all of the key Madchester artists and the key Madchester songs, you have a bunch of uh, Stone Roses and you have a bunch of Happy Mondays, and then you you know some Primal Scream, and then every so often you have like a guy named Gerald or a guy called Gerald, and it's you know one of these things is not like the other. So to me, it's you know Manchester is 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 kind of just what's going on and what's being ecstasy fueled at the time. And there's like uh, you know there's an acid house influence and element to it, but you really have to squint and look sideways for a lot of what's you know what's happening there. I, I just feel like it's uh, it was this is this is the rock an indie rock scene reacting to acid house and being influenced in, 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 in the ways of partying, maybe not so much musically, but sometimes musically as well. Yeah, for sure. And to be clear, primal scream, I think was from Scotland and sort of capped in on the Manchester scene. And that's the thing, the Manchester scene crashed and burned really fast, but we'll get to that in a minute. But first let's talk a little bit about Manchester, which is a big industrial city in the British Midlands. Um, it's had a storied pop history all the way back to the sixties with the Hollies and Freddie and the Dreamers. In the seventies, it was a big punk city with the Buzzcocks magazine, the fall joy division. In the eighties you had new order and the whole synth pop thing had a big um, Manchester hub. Cabaret Voltaire and others were in that general greater area. And the Smiths, who were a real reactionary guitar band, you know, kind of pushing back against the, the synth pop. And that's the thing in England, rock had already kind of been dethroned with when post-punk turned into industrial and synth pop, that took a lot of the energy out of rock's sales. And unlike in America, where it just got more and more rock all the way through the early 90s, in Britain, there had already been kind of blows against the empire. And so groups like the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses, I think, were already kind of on the back foot. And people like Tony Wilson, who had been the 
manager and record or record label owner for for New Order, and then he owned the Hacienda Club. And I do think you have to give Manchester their props for having major clubs and having a major acid house scene. It's a big population center, big student center, uh, big gay center, 15 million people in the greater Manchester area at the time. So I'd say you could make a case for it being culturally the second city of England, which, you know, it's a distant second to London, but still, um, you know, a, a credible force on the scene, I would say. And, and, as yeah, I definitely, you definitely got to give it, uh, give it its props. I mean, I really feel like this whole Manchester thing, Manchester, Manchester, is uh, it was created by the enthusiasm of of the city and of the from the power that the scene had. Uh, you know, they they just basically created it out of whole cloth and then presented all these artists that you know maybe maybe in a more uh, in in a, in a more crowded scene wouldn't get get paid that much attention to, and they hoisted upon everybody and they made it work. Yeah, absolutely, and that's another thing is they kind of picked up the rock press. This was me as a rocker. This was one. This was really when I first became aware that acid house was happening in England because you'd pick up the British music magazines and not the super hip ones that were covering the dance scene, but the more rock oriented ones, NME, Melody Maker, stuff like that. And you couldn't avoid the Happy Mondays. And I think they thought, like when they came to the New Music Seminar in New York and were just talking mad trash about how they were going to take over the world, I really don't think they grasped how happening the American scene was at the time because you had hip hop's golden age, at the time, you had grunge bubbling under. You had that whole L.A. scene with Jane's Addiction and Fishbone and Red Hot Chili Peppers bubbling under. And some of them were bubbling under in a big way. And the Manchester scene just kind of added to that air of excitement and, and innovation, but it wasn't ever able to kind of dominate. And the fact that um, the Stone Roses had these massive legal problems and the Happy Mondays were just this rolling disaster of – drug abuse and and you know tabloid shenanigans didn't help him any but let's let's talk a little bit about the scene um a little bit more like they had a big head start because they were a northern soul hub and i think this connection between northern soul and and Man- madchester is why brewster and broughton in our last series spent so much time on northern soul is because that was a precursor of the rave scene in so many ways. And one of them was it trained British dancers to really dig up-tempo African-American music that was older and that was coming from obscure records. So it didn't matter that the house scene was three, four, five years old when it exploded. Although DJ Stu Allen had been playing house music on the local radio since 86. So, you know, they were very much early adopters. And I don't think you had the same issue with um, house DJs getting bottled. I don't think you had the hip hop scene in, in Manchester for one thing that you had in London, so they didn't have to deal with it. And then you just had clubs like the Hacienda, which was this massive club that was funded by New Order and, and Tony Wilson of Factory Records were partners on it. And originally it was kind of an industrial sound and kind of a dystopian ambience, but they brought in DJs Martin Pickering and Martin Pendergast who added house to the mix. 
And Pickering had been in Quando Quango, which was an avant funk band, uh, which was another scene that thrived in Manchester earlier. And so he'd been to the Paradise Garage because they had been successful in New York. So he kind of had that Larry Levin vibe as well. And so um, they they had the house vibe and then the garage vibe. And then in July of 88, they set up a Wednesday night hot uh, at Has, Has, Hacienda, hot nights were Wednesday nights, and they had a Balearic vibe. So they're they're kind of, you know, picking up. And then Friday, shortly after, Pickering and DJ Graham Park took over, started Nude Nights, which was the quote mental night, which I assume is kind of the hardcore house night. So, um, you know, big the Hacienda big really had uh, a whole bunch of stuff going on with it. I mean. You know, you talk about Manchester uh, being the the Manchester hub, and then the Hacienda being the the central point of Manchester, and everything kind of coming out of that. And again, you got to give them their props for 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 being that uh, that one bar that, or you know, it's not even one bar; it's like six bars. It was like a a, a gigantic yacht. Uh, construction and sales building that they converted into a big main room and then a downstairs bar and then three other bars and another smaller uh, venue down in the basement for I, I'm not sure like I come you know again from Canada where where the you know a bar is a bar is one bar in a building but I mean when you go into the UK and you check out these places and it's just these compounds these complexes and uh, the Hacienda was a really cool place uh played really cool music and uh, it was a real trendsetter and it was just something to something to behold and i can't imagine what it must have been like uh not only when you have this uh, music scene that's popping off and this enthusiasm that's popping off but obviously all the drug scene popping off and everybody doing ecstasy yeah it was heady days and let's hear the happy mondays step on this is the twisting my melon remix from the happy mondays And that was Step On by the Happy Mondays, the Twisting My Melon remix. And I think when you listen to that, especially like going back and listening to a lot of other groups from this period, like the Shaman or the Beloved in particular, or EMF, I think what distinguished Happy Mondays, at least for my dollar, was that they didn't have that British guy trying to rap vibe, but Sean Ryder's singing slash talking functioned a lot like a rap had a ton of attitude and I think just succeeded in mixing rock and dance music much more so than than a lot of the rock, rock rap or rap dance attempts that were coming out of Britain at the same time. And for me, Step On really kind of has it all. It's very danceable, drum loops, guitar loop, uh, keyboard loop, uh, vocal samples. It's it, I remember at the time sitting down with it and trying to figure out how are they doing this? Like, I knew really well how rock bands worked and I was kind of figuring out how hip hop worked. And so it was really fascinating to me to listen and, and think, oh, I think that's a drum loop. Oh, this is clearly a guitar loop that they're sampling over and over again. So for a brief moment, I think the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses did make a serious run at the throne as far as combining rock and rave in a credible way that had big commercial potential, particularly in the UK, but they faded really fast. 
Yeah, there was uh, there was some really cool stuff that they were doing with these drum beats. Uh, you can that's that's the most overt influence that you can hear. But there was you know uh, some some really interesting piano melodies being added in there. And as you said, the sampling. And it's funny that the Happy Mondays didn't do the rap thing, but then when they came Blackus Bacchus, Black Grape. I mean, that was they 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 took all the time where they didn't have any rap in it, and they doubled or tripled it over, and. Uh, and yeah, just made up for the lack of it earlier on by just putting in so much of it. Yeah, and I, I don't know how successful those later experiments were, but you know what? For for that small for the for the people that liked it, they really really liked it. It's one of those things where you know, Grateful Dead never never really charted, but boy, do people like them. And uh, you know, when, apparently when Black Grape came back, uh, everybody lost it to them, and it was uh, it was a great attraction. So you know. Mm. Different strokes for different folks, but and I'll, I'll have to go back and give that another listen too. And it wasn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't even want to tell you the stuff I'm going through. Listen for my glam metal uh, show. I'm researching for another series, but um, so I'm, I'm in musical purgatory right now. But it wasn't just the hacienda though. There were some other clubs that sprang up in their wake that were much dodgier. Thunderdome and Conspiracy that had a much rougher working class vibe. The music was, quote, real acid stormtrooper stuff, had a much more aggressive aggro kind of punk vibe to it. Definitely a lot of hardcore house. There was also the Kitchen and Home, which I think I'm mispronouncing, but was an illegal squat club in a derelict housing estate full of, quote, gangsters, drugs and guns. And you, and you quote, heard a lot about rapes going on in there. So, you know, some of these places had definitely a dodgy aspect to it. And it wasn't just Manchester. It spread out. There was Frenzy in Blackpool, Delight in Stoke-on-Trent, Quadrant Park, uh, which was a mega club in Liverpool, went house early in 1990. Uh, then they opened their own legal all-nighter, the first all-nighter, legal all-nighter in England, the Pavilion, and a ton of illegal raves, Joy, Live, Live the Dream, Blast Off, um, Blackburn was a big hub for this stuff because there were so many abandoned mills and so much abandoned industrial property that, you know, it was perfect. So they yeah, were you really... can't even really imagine how much uh, industrial decay that there was to take advantage of in these cities. Like uh, in 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 my cities where I was operating in Montreal and Ottawa, there was a little bit of there was a little bit of derelict buildings kind of around, but there was so much. There was so much of, a, of an eye on everything, either from the police or from the government workers who just acted as an extension of the police. But I mean, these areas here, there were entire like regions and you could basically go into a building and then further on into another building, down into a basement and then to, to a sub building and just close the doors behind you and no one would be able to find you. So like these places had industrial quadrants that were just ripe for this kind of behavior and for these kinds of events. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely not something the fire inspector would approve of, but um, you know, it worked at the at the time, and I don't know of any mass casualty events happening. So, hats off to the Scaladelia survivors. That was one of the early names of the scene, Scaladelia, which was short for Scallywag, which was apparently more of a Liverpool thing than a Manchester thing. That Manchester was known for the Perry Boy, and in my experience, guys who wore uh, Perry polo shirts tended to be Nazi skinheads or skinhead adjacent. But in Manchester, it was a much more, I mean, the Perry shirt's like the most popular polo in Europe. So it's not strictly a Nazi thing, but that was the scene. But then as with everywhere else, baggy clothes and psychedelic colors uh, start coming into it. And there's this um, 
definite conscious attempt to link Manchester with the 60s psychedelic movement. I mean, there were t-shirts at the time, Woodstock 69, Manchester 89, that kind of stuff. So very similar to the whole second summer of love vibe that epitomized the first wash of acid house in England. So, um, you know, they're definitely part of the greater movement, but they're putting their own spin on it. And this rock band thing is a big, big part of it. And a lot of these bands, like we talked about the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays, but a lot of the other ones, like In Spiral Carpets in particular, and Primal Scream early on were consciously psychedelic revival acts to begin with. And In Spiral Carpets never got rid of their cheesy little 60s organ that just all over every track. My kid was really baffled by what is this stuff? Because <laughs> these are plenty of 60s stuff with the Farfisa organ, um, but he hadn't heard 80s stuff with that. And, you know, at, at times In Spiral Carpets flirted with the, the, the rave sound, not quite as successfully as Stone Roses and Happy Mondays did. And also, the football fans, um, the soccer hooligans, also came in in a big way in this. And and in 89-90, the, the football season was called the, quote, winter of love. And one of the chants was, oh, we're all blissed up and we're going to win the cup. So, you know, it wasn't just in, in the South where the soccer hooligans became eat up and suddenly peaceful. And they they just took away the uh, even even the rave element of it because it's so funny because ecstasy and and, and raving go hand in hand so much to a degree that when you hear a story about uh, an ecstasy scene amongst the football fans, it almost seems strange and out of place. But I mean, you got to figure that ecstasy was kind of popping out everywhere. And any, you know, with uh, with how it used to be before it got, you know, watered down and, and stepped on and everything else like that, you know, it's, it's a good idea. If you got a if you got a, a group of friends going out and stuff like that, why not? So I imagine it was a pretty good season. Yeah. And I'm sure it was much better than you know, the mass violence that they'd been indulging in through the 80s and also the horrific stampedes that had, you know, marred soccer in the north of England in this period. Um, and also there was the end, which was a soccer music zine from Liverpool. So uh, these these football fans and punters are definitely a big part of the scene. But let's go ahead and hear another tune. This is 808 States Pacific State. Uh, and uh, a guy called Gerald was in the band at the, when they wrote it, although he wasn't in there when they released it and legal, legal troubles ensued. But this is 808 States, Pacific State. Pacific State by 808 State, which was one of the few true dance producers coming out of Manchester in this period and making their mark, uh, having, having a big impact. But again, this was definitely at least as much a rock scene as it was a rave scene. And, and the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses, to me, they very much pre were precursors of the sort of Oasis blur vibe that you would see in the Britpop movement in later on in the 90s, where rock had kind of given up, I think, hopes of taking over the whole world, but they were very popular and they were just rock bands. But in, at this point, it's not clear if rock is going to be able to sort of 
digest rave and and take over the scene because rock had done that with many other forms of music before folk rock jazz rock uh, country rock etc etc and so in the late 80s you know it was it was a reasonable bet to see and happy mondays and stone roses were so charismatic and troubled they were great tabloid fodder i mean i didn't even follow their music i mean they i had them on my list to buy you know and i remember picking up a happy mondays 12 inch but I always picked something else when I would get it out of the store. I mean, because they were competing with like, you know, Nirvana's first album or Eric B. and Rakim's first album. And so it was uh, a tough go of it here in the States for them. I always found that they're kind of like the Arctic monkeys where it's like, okay, like I hear a lot of good things about them, but they're just something that's going on in Britain that no one else cares about. So I'm just not going <laughs> to just not going to do it. Yeah, there was definitely that factor, but I knew who Sean Ryder was. And I knew who Bez was and I knew their antics because I was glancing at the covers of those tabloids when I would be in the music store and they were always in there. And there was definitely kind of a Beatles Stones aspect where the Stone Roses were the guys who were more articulate and pretty arty and politically aware and angry and for a minute, it looked like they were going to be the big thing. Like their their single "Fool's Gold" was was a big hit before the Mondays had a hit, but their follow up stiffed, and um, then they know. got stuck in that that purgatory with their with their record label, and they basically got shut down for what two or three years or something well, like, like that. Four years. It just sucked all was, the yeah. sucked all the creativity and all the all the momentum and everything right out of them. Yeah, absolutely. They got in a, in a lawsuit with their record label. That tied him up for, I think, a year. Then they won the case. Then the record label appealed, and that tied him up for another year. Then by the time they get signed, it took him a year to make the record. And I think it was 94 or 95 by the, the follow-up, by the time the follow-up came out. And then in that time, the Happy Mondays had had their whole run and had multiple hits. Um, although initially, they partnered with DJ Paul Oakenfold, that we've talked about many times on the show and he did a house remix of wrote for luck but it's stiffed it wasn't until they did their rave on ep which is quote a queasy merger of rock riffs and studio programmed beats um that broke through and then especially in contrast with the stone roses who like i said were sort of articulate and self-conscious and self-educated the mondays were total prole quote, real working class band. And people, you know, I think Reynolds calls them lump and prole oiks on the prowl and on the make. <laughs> so Yeah, I liked how Simon Reynolds basically said that they're the British uh, butthole surfers because they were just so uh, kind of over the top and and ridiculous and, and not not really not really to, trying to be taken seriously, try just just doing doing this very particular thing, peculiar thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was a very interesting con uh, comparison because I was, uh, the bundle servers were right here in Austin, and that was my band that I saw all the time, and and absolutely, you know, the, my compass, my polar north, for what I thought was cool at the time, and I didn't see that connection, but once I read this and thought about it, yeah, I, I can see that they were just doing their own thing and did not care what anybody was doing. But the other thing about these bands were doing was they started organizing quasi raves at places like the Blackpool Empress Ballroom and Alexander Palace, and they replaced their support bands with DJs like Paul Oakenfold. May 1990, they had a 28,000-person outdoor festival on Spike Island, and that's when it looked like the Stone Roses were really going to lead this thing, you know, that they were going to be 
you know, an Oasis level superstar band and that they were going to mix rock and rave completely and kind of take over the world. But their follow up single, One Love, stiffed. It didn't stiff, but it didn't do as well as Fool's Gold. And, and you know, they, they just didn't hang. And, and the Happy Mondays throw their own pseudo rave at Wembley Arena. Step On goes to number five, and the Mondays take it over. And then Tony Wilson goes to the New Music Seminar. And I remember reading about this at the time and, and just talked so much mad trash about how, you know, the scene was going to take over the world. And once again, we're, you know, we Brits have appreciated the black music that the African-American music that the American market has ignored, and we're going to sell it back to you. And it's going to be bigger than the Beatles and blah, blah, blah. And it was not, <laughs> I don't think his promotional efforts helped them yeah, the, one of the things that stuck out to me was he said the quiet part out loud, which was that the Happy Mondays, uh, you know, weren't just selling drug culture, they were actually selling drugs. And that's like one of the interesting things about that band is, is early on in the day, like they were straight up drug dealers. So that was... Uh, and uh, a lot of a lot of the big push going on for ecstasy and when they when they kind of mentioned casually in the book, oh, you know, well, Manchester ended up kind of being a was a big drug drug hub and uh, ecstasy kind of hit here pretty hard. Uh, you know, the at least the Happy Mondays were very in in the thick of it as evangelists and, uh, you know, right down to the point of uh, of handing the, the drugs over and, and being there and giving them to the people coming to their shows and stuff like that. Yeah. And what Wilson didn't get was that America was still in the Reagan era. I think Bush was president by this point, but it was still very much Nancy Reagan, just say no, dare to stay off drugs. And the crack wars had been going on in America for five, six years at this point. And even people that weren't you know, on the total reactionary anti-drug tip, were very wary of drug dealers and, and the violence that was associated with the scene. Whereas in England at that point, it was sort of more of a laddish, naughty, naughty kind of thing and not really arch villain gangster murderers that that we were dealing with in the States. So they didn't quite know what they were what they were getting into. But let's switch a little bit and talk about the Manchester House artists with which is essentially 808 State and a guy called Gerald. And so Gerald Simpson is of Caribbean descent. He grew up on electro synth pop art rock and jazz fusion. And that jazz fusion thing was really interesting to me. He's one of several figures in this chapter that they mention had a big jazz fusion influence. And so I guess it makes sense with England being the home of jazz funk um, and jazz fusion was more of an integral integral part of the scene than it was in the States, where it was kind of a pariah scene in the States. It had an audience in the 70s, and it's sometimes a pretty big audience, but the rock mags didn't cover it. It wasn't played at the dance club, so you don't hear it coming up a lot. Anyway, yeah, it's formed- definitely something that didn't get a lot of uh, credit. Even even in uh, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, I think they kind of, when they talked about those scenes, they, they, they kind of lamented the fact that it was not a cool thing to be into, but because so many people who were influenced by it came out of it and ended up driving all the actually, you know, cool and, and commercially successful stuff after it, you can't not mention it because obviously it was doing something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think uh, some of it holds up to, you know, exploring now and going back and listening to it with a more open mind. I know I've appreciated it much more than I did back in the day. Anyway, Gerald Simpson forms this uh, rap collective called the Hit Squad with a guy named Graham Massey. And then he goes on and they form 808 State together. Um, and put 
uh, Pacific State together while Simpson's still in the group. But then there's fights over money. Simpson quits. Then Pacific State comes out, goes top 10 pop, and uh, Simpson files suit and you know gets credit and royalties. Um, and I think the more important thing is that Pacific State is an early ambient house record. And it's interesting what he was what they were trying to do, or at least what Massey was trying to do, was bring in some of these elements of the the exotica or lounge music that he was into, which let it roll listeners who've listened to my episodes on on elevator music. Uh, we'll be familiar with that. It, it was a big scene in the 50s. You know, a lot of pipe smoking, robe, you know, velvet robe wearing dads would bring home these LPs to their uh, swinging uh, hi-fi scene and, and, you know, listen to the sounds of, of the tropical jungle uh, in the night. And so in the 80s, a lot of younger people had this fascination with those old records because you could find them anywhere. Nobody wanted this stuff in the 70s and early 80s. So it was, you know, stacks of them in old record stores. And and if you're brave enough to look at it and listen to it, some interesting stuff in Pacific State, I think fairly successfully brings that in. Although the exotica elements, I think it just becomes sort of this, it gets sucked into the greater ambient um, or new age house movement that was going on at the same time. Yeah, and I the- heard them on a uh, on a late night music video uh, show, you know, like basically where they take all the electronic music and they play it at 1230 because it's, you know, all, everything before that is is reserved for all the rock and stuff that makes money. But uh, I heard 808 State and Pacific State back then, like late at night. And it was uh, it was definitely it was familiar, but it was different from anything I'd ever heard before. And I got really into that kind of uh, uh, ambient electronic sound that that they were at a forefront of, at least out, coming out of the UK. Absolutely. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll hear how a guy called Gerald responded. And so Gerald Simpson doesn't just sit pat. He forms an or he doesn't form a new group. He goes solo, but he names himself a guy called Gerald and um, puts out a record called Voodoo Ray, which I thought this was fascinating. This was a big record I, even I was aware of. And I didn't realize he originally tried to sample something that was saying Voodoo Rage, but because of the limitations of the sampler, he could only say Voodoo Ray. And yeah, it's so, a pretty hilarious little little thing. And I think it's so much better as Voodoo Ray. <laughs> Oh, the song is not rage. <laughs> no, no, it's it's it, it it adds this element of what the heck to it that I think is perfect. And Voodoo Rage would have just kind of been a non sequitur. But that went all the way to number twelve on the UK pop charts in July of '89. And Reynolds points out he sees this as a as a precursor of Jungle, and it was widely heard and widely played in the club. So I have no doubt that that all the creators of Jungle were aware of Voodoo Ray, and clearly. Uh, you know, the auditory evidence is pretty clear that they uh, are listening. And so CBS signs him up. Um, he puts out a, a major label al- album, Automatic. Um, but CBS doesn't even release his follow up high life low profile. And, you know, just another artist that gets sucked into the major label system and did not thrive. And, and everybody lost that work because it didn't come out. And that, uh, it's one of those repeating stories from from Manchester is that you had uh, the Stone Roses getting locked up for years and you got the the Happy Mondays disappearing to the Caribbean and and just going off on a, on a, on a complete drug tear and then and and stalling out. And now a guy called Gerald uh, basically being swallowed by CBS. Those those shelved albums, man, like I really wonder about those those. 
like, like you, you hear that there's an album that he wrote and he gave to a label and then it never comes out and it never comes out. And it's, I understand this is maybe, a, uh, uh, something from the bygone era where this happens, but how does this album not appear online at this point? Like there's actually, you can't find a guy called Gerald. A lot of his stuff, even Voodoo Ray isn't even on Spotify in Canada. So I don't know what kind of weird legal limbo he's in, but a lot of his music is very, is very swallowed and very memory hold. Yeah, these corporations are like sort of, you know, giant sows in a stall accidentally rolling over piglets right and left without even being aware of of what they've done. And and yeah, it's um and they get litigious when you when you when you push back and start demanding that this stuff comes out. And you know, I think there's no better place to lose original art than in the storerooms of a, of a massive corporation that's merged with 50 other massive corporations and the warehouses have just been, you know, shunted around and, and God knows, you know, what kind of care. So hopefully those, that stuff comes out at some point and a guy called Gerald uh, stuff becomes more widely available. I was able to find it, but I had to scratch and search and talk to some traders and stuff. So, um, you know, yeah, not easy. And 808 State was on ZTT, which was a major label subsidiary. They put out an album uh, called 9D. And I think this fact that they're doing albums and that they're album artists and the way Reynolds, you know, Reynolds is a former rockist who converted to dance. And, and I think you see that, though, in the book where he still ends up talking about rock bands and albums much more so than like Brewster and Broughton, who are very DJ and 12 inch oriented. Um, and, you know, yeah, he'll get sucked into uh, review mode, like with 808 state, he just like broke it down and just just here's an entire two or three paragraphs on the album and, and kind of talking through the songs and he does it with Adamski as well or Adam Adamski. Adamski, I think. Yeah, 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 he does. And, and it's it's interesting sometimes to go from he'll he'll be running you through on a really brisk run through a scene and then he'll suddenly start hitting on albums and he'll like break down specific instruments or specific samples and, and discuss like what's going on with that. So it's a, it's a fun little jump back into him putting his uh, record review hat on. And uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is, is still pretty amusing. So you can tell he was good at it. Yeah, I, I dig it. You know, it's it's kind of more comfortable for me coming from a raucous background than used to reading rock critics talk about this stuff. And also, you know, 808 State, they did their XL album that had cameos from Bernard Sumner of New Order. And Bjork is on there. Um, but Martin Price uh, had a pretty good rant about how he hated these crossover bands like Primal Scream and The Beloved and rejected this whole notion that rock was going to absorb rave he was like you know this this scene is about machine power punk rock was about arm power and nobody and wants to see a bunch of is, guys getting sweaty <laughs> and it's funny because he was saying that directly as a response to to norman cook aka fat boy slim back when he was uh, he had just i don't know if he was still with the house martins or if this was just a side project he had done aside from the house martins but norman cook had just started making dance music and so uh 808 states martin price was was railing against 
against Norman Cook and saying, you're completely wrong about everything involving dance music. Shut your mouth. And obviously <laughs> we can see how that turned out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody had the last laugh there. And one thing, again, that I thought was interesting was this remix of John Hassel's voice print that 808 State did. And this was something I was absolutely oblivious to before I read the book. Um, but this was a jazz fusion record that had been influenced by hip hop. Hassel was a jazz fusion guy who got into hip hop, cuts this record voice print, and something about that tickled the ears of 808 State and they do this remix of it. So, um, you know, cross-pollination is, is probably my favorite thing in music and there's a lot of that going on. And And like you said, there's a ton of ex-punks on this scene now, like the Orbs, Alex Patterson, ex-punk, Primal Screams, Bobby Gillespie, ex-punk, Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cotty of the KLF and Ancient Order of the Moo Moos, ex-punk. And so, you know, there's there was so much energy and so many people got sucked into punk in 76, 77, 78 in England, and not all of them could be the Sex Pistols or the Damned or the Jam. And so... A lot of them had to go back and, and rebrand themselves and try again. And a lot of them uh, end up doing some pretty interesting thing. I think you'd have to say that the Warb and Primal Scream definitely made made an impact. And then he gets into the positivity movement, which talking about this era, it's totally fascinating. We talked about Soul to Soul, which was a sound system group that became a pop success out of London. Uh, we talked a little bit about that in the Brewster and Broughton book. And they're kind of fascinating to me. I link them up with like Ace of Bass and other artists of that ilk. Um, uh, and I'm blanking on some of the other names I want to call up. But there was just this weird period where there was this sort of um, one. A lot of bands had these one off hit singles mixing dance and rap and also positivity. And you had in the hip hop scene, the, the Native Tongues movement with De La Soul and the Jungle Brothers and Tribe Called Quest were very, and Queen Latifah were very much into this positivity thing. And this is also the period where the Berlin Wall fell, which growing up in the 80s was not something anybody, at least in America, saw coming. And I imagine it was very much the same in England. It's like there's suddenly this just you know, uh, windfall of good news. Like, holy shit, the evil empire fell down. We can actually go to Eastern Europe and they can come here and peace and love. And, and you know, uh, people were protesting in Tiananmen Square. It looked for a minute like the Chinese communists were going to fall. And, you know, so it's a very positive era that didn't really survive the early 90s recessions. But, um, you know, there's a ton of stuff. I mean, it wasn't just Pacific State. There's also uh, Express that we talked about last time. They had another hit, Mantra for a State of Mind. Uh, Innocence had The Natural Thing. The Grid had Flotation. The Beloved had The Sun Rising. So there's this whole sort of positivity, ambient house scene going on. The KLF puts out their Chill Out album. Uh, the Orb had this great song title, quote, a huge, ever-growing, pulsating brain that rules from the center of the ultra world. So, you know, tons of crazy stuff. Adam Ski had uh, his hit Killer, which um, I'd been planning to play Voodoo Ray, but do you think we should play Killer instead? Your, your call. Uh, well, if you want to deal with all of the YouTube and Facebook and all the other alerts being like, you're playing copyrighted <laughs> music. <laughs> We're going to get that either way on this episode, I think. But let's go with a guy called Gerald's Voodoo Ray and hear the precursor of Jungle.
a guy called Gerald's Voodoo Ray, which Reynolds calls a precursor of Jungle. But yeah, so there's this guy, Adam Ski, his name was Adam Tinley, who'd been around since 1979. He had a punk band then when he was, I think, 11 um, and, and just kept trying. And so we mentioned him last time as, quote, one of the live music rave artists. But he kind of has a high watermark when he partners with Seal, who's this African. Is he Canadian? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, he's British. Um, who's who's a Afro Brit? Um, and really dramatically ups Adamski's game because this is by far, at least from the little bit of his work I've sampled and from Reynolds' take on it, this this is a definitely a high water mark uh, for uh, Adamski because Reynolds calls his follow up pitiful. The Space Jungle, which was a, a cover of Elvis's All Shook Up, which is... I mean, that that does sound terrible. So. <laughs> and and it, it also sounds terrible if you actually go and listen to it like I did. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, Elvis later on has some big dance numbers remixes later on in the 90s, but this was not, not one of them. And then Reynolds uh, goes on in and talks about the KLF, which we did basically a whole episode on. Brewster and Broughton kind of treated them as DJs, as artists. But honestly, they were really more like artists who turned, who dabbled with DJing more than the reverse. Or really artists who dabbled in, in music or or you could say even marketers who dabbled in art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's brilliant. layers to that onion. Yeah, brilliant and way ahead of their time. Um, but, you know, they first come out as the justified ancients of Moo Moo, do this mashup of the Beatles and the MC5 that they call All You Need Is Love, same title as the Beatles song they were sampling. Um, go to number one is the Time Lords with Doctor in the TARDIS, which combines the Doctor Who theme song with the infamous Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part 2. And Gary Glitter wasn't a known pedophile at this point. He was kind of a beloved uh, rock star from the 70s that was still popular on British TV and stuff at the time. So it was very much right up the middle lane of Brit pop culture that they remix. And then they write a book about it called How to Have a Hit the Easy Way. Then they shift to rave, become the KLF, put out a, a pretty apocal set of singles, What Time is Love, 3 AM Eternal, Last Train to Trans Central, uh, had four top five hits and a number one from late 90 to early 92. So for this 18 month period, they really grabbed the pop zeitgeist in Britain and and also pioneered this ambient um, sound that's big and and yeah there's but, even arguments that we had uh, over in the special trance episode of last season where we were debating whether or not you could say the KLF were were one of the forefathers of trance and if 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 not one of the, one of the key the key people who set it down because they were one of the first people to to start releasing records with the word trance in it and, uh, with that trance sound so they they there's a lot going on there and it's interesting for me to see them kind of bundled up and and just kind of mentioned in the Madchester uh, section of things, but you know, they also had guitars and they also did a lot of that uh, kind of band work as opposed to, you know, just being full electronic artists like you're seeing in most of the other chapters. So I guess they do fit in there kind of well. Yeah, I mean, for as much as they popped around and changed their identities, and I think at the end, their last run of stuff was working with the, the grindcore band Extreme Noise Terror so and redoing some of their hits. And, 
you know, and if you're looking, I think it was 3 a.m. Eternal where I'm searching on YouTube music for it. And the first version I get is the the remix they did with Extreme Noise, te- Noise Terror, which is extremely different, you know, than, uh, than, than the, the actual single that came out at the time. But they weren't the only ones on this tip. Like there was the Beloved who... Reynolds goes back to the well with this pun he loves. They had a revelation at Shoom, which is the big London club we talked about last time, or the small London club, uh, and and um, had you know converted to rave and, and went from a rock band to to rave act. And the sun rising was was their hit, which. Reynolds calls a rare shock of sublime on the charts. So heady praise from Simon Reynolds there. Then you yeah, have the especially shop. since you know he's willing to he's willing to bury you too. <laughs> yes, as Adamski uh, can attest, Reynolds, uh, yeah, is not just going to puff you up. And and then the shaman were also big at the time, and they went totally full on new age. And and Colin Angus also. If you listen to the Shaman's records, it's much more rave-centric. It doesn't sound like a band really at all. And other than the bad British rapping, which reminds me of like EMF and others, uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. And he did his own programming and sampling, whereas like the Stone Roses and Happy Mondays would bring in Paul Oakenfold or whoever, and you know Primal Scream brought in DJ Andrew Weatherall uh, to remix stuff. The Shaman actually did their own sampling sequencing uh i don't know if he was a turntablist as well but they they also did their live act where they combined live techno bands and djs stunning light shows and video projections with an array of sideshows and chill out rooms so there were a lot of people from the rock scene who were kind of copying what they were seeing from the rave scene and, and definitely a big blender culturally is going on yeah they, they were one of the people that was uh like we talked about uh, the happy mondays and uh, and the the uh the stone roses doing rave events and the shaman were were basically instead of a tour where they would you know go to a bar and set up and play the show and then take off like they were they were setting these events up like raves so they had a traveling rave thing and they actually talked about how they wanted to become uh the 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 rave equivalent of the grateful dead and going around and spreading this message and it was uh you know it, it didn't didn't you know i don't know how long it worked out for i can't say it didn't work out because the shaman were a big deal and they were touring for quite a few years and they were they were bringing a show so but you know yeah. they didn't become the grateful dead no and and who no, nobody did but you know aim high i think is is always a good goal and their intact album uh uh, you know, it might not have been the quote spiritual revolution that Colin Angus was hoping for, but it was a remarkable album of its time. There was also Flowered Up, which was a group of inner city kids from London's Regent's Park Estate, had a couple of hits, Weekender, and it's on. And they threw an infamous squat rave at a mansion block in Blackheath, uh, and apparently in a drug dealer's house, and still trashed the place, and apparently escaped without consequences, or at least well known. So. You know, definitely there was a wild zeitgeist going on and and a lot of different levels of Britain's infamously stratified society are mixing and matching here. And that brings us to Primal Scream. And like I mentioned before, they were originally a neo-psych band from the mid-80s um, and got into rave. And their ambition was to be an interface between rock history and dance, the dance present. And... For a minute there, when they worked with DJ Andrew Weatherall, who was one of the boys' own fanzine guys, uh, they brought him in to remix I'm Losing More Than I'll Ever Have, uh, which he turned into the song Loaded that went to number 16. 
they did a song come together and Weatherall and also terry farley who's another boy's own guy both do remixes Weatherall's was called higher than the sun uh and farley's was american no i think farley was higher than the sun and Weatherall did american spring and dub symphony out of that and then they bring in alex patterson of the orb to work on the big album screamadelica which i think screamadelica is probably the pinnacle of this rave rock mixing um and and let's go yeah, ahead and, and higher higher than the sun also being just basically the pinnacle of the pinnacle from that album yeah yeah and i was tempted to play higher than the sun but i'm figuring most people have heard it and i want to get a texas link in because they covered slip inside this house by the 13th floor elevators on that album and here's primal scream covering and then remixing slip inside this house scream covering the 13th floor elevators classic psychedelic tune slip inside this house and giving it the full alex patterson uh dance remix treatment so that's the high mark but then primal scream goes back out on tour and sort of reverted to their laddish selves and and you know plugged in got the guitars back and pretty much forgot about the dance blend yeah one of the interesting quotes from the book was was questioning whether or not Primal Scream ever really was that deep into that sound, or if it was really more Andrew Weatherall that was kind of behind, uh, really behind the sound of that album. And you've, you've heard albums before where a producer comes in and just fundamentally changes the sound of an artist and and then leaves, and then the artist reverts back. So it's not a, it's not a bad theory. And the other thing that kind of interests me about that situation is that there was a certain blueprint that was laid down from those producers. If you're not familiar with Andrew Weatherall's name, He's also known as Sabres of Paradise, and I'm sure you've seen him that on on basically all of those soundtracks in the early 90s when they wanted to have, you know, rock artists with an electronic element. Sabres of Paradise was always doing remix after remix along with the orb as well. So it's, it's funny how after Screamadelica, those producers basically uh, got got just carte blanche to, to remix whatever uh, electronic uh, give whatever electronic influence they could to uh, to rock bands. They were very very high demand as, as producers and remixers. Yeah, and Reynolds, though, argues that just like Primal Scream never matched Screamadelica afterwards, that he argues Weatherall never matched it with Sabres of Paradise. So um, I'm not familiar enough with his work, and nor am I a critic, so I don't, I don't know if that's a fair assessment, but that's Reynolds' assessment anyway. But then, as with any druggy scene, um, the bottom falls out. The 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 glorious days of of the love, the new love era ended quickly. Um, that, you know, like we mentioned, the Stone Roses are tied up in lawsuits. The Happy Mondays. I'd love to have been in at the record company meeting when somebody says, "Let's fund the Happy Mondays to go to the Caribbean and record an album." <laughs> like, let's write a blank check. For these druggy lunatics to go to the drug capital of Earth. Oh, and it definitely wasn't an idea of theirs. It was something that must have been done to them, and then they just had to keep on, yeah. keep on feeding, feeding the furnace <laughs> with more cash. 
<laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, that's kind of where the Happy Mondays ran aground. And then the gang activity that had always been an undercurrent of the Manchester scene, uh, they, you know, as it will, as we've talked about, ecstasy has this life cycle. It works great for some people at first, and then you do it again, do it again, that never recreates that original high. And so a lot of people are drawn to then harder drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, and the drug dealers are more than happy to service those wants. And with those kind of drugs come an uglier scene and the gang activity starts to shut down clubs. And, you know, there was a precursor, a girl named Claire Layton uh, collapsed at the Hacienda in July of 89 and later passed away. And so there'd always been, you know, some casualties even from the very beginning. But by December of 1990, conspiracy lost its license. The Hacienda fought really hard. And a lot of their moves were counterproductive because they put in this elaborate surveillance system and security system. And that ended up with gangs who had been kept out of the club sneaking in and stabbing bouncers. And so they ended up voluntarily closing in 1991 after several ugly incidents. The pavilion in Liverpool closes. And Happy Mondays, Yes, Please album bankrupts Factory. And Factory was not like a major label, even though they punched way above their weight with New Order and Joy Division and so many of the albums that they had put out. But, um, you know, so often a large independent is brought down by a very successful act like the Happy Mondays. And and there's nothing quite like footing the bill for a massive, um, <laughs> a massive drug binge in the Caribbean. And I, and I had read that Factory was, uh, was, was integral in kind of funding Manchester bands and stuff like that. So when you have a, when you have a label like that, that's kind of a champion that's willing to put in, put money into the scene to make the scene better on a local level, and then it gets taken out. It's kind of devastating to the local ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And Tony Wilson, um, I've been kind of hard on him in this episode, but uh, he's a pretty remarkable character. And right from the beginning, even before Joy Division, he was a TV producer and and kind of a guy who made things happen in the scene there. And, you know, cut this deal with Joy Division that Joy Division made more money off the records than Factory did. So he was kind of a lamb in the woods uh, in the music business. And it's really I think just a testament to his vision and his passion for the art that they were as successful as they were, because he was certainly not a brilliant, hard-headed businessman, but he accomplished a ton. And I don't think we'd be talking about Manchester without Tony Wilson. So hats yeah. off to Tony Wilson and, and uh, the Hacienda, the legendary, legendary dance club. And, and anybody that wants to know more about that, just read the book or watch the movie 24 Hour Party People, because it's got a lot of, you know, maybe maybe not not exactly 100 percent accurate, but it's got it's it's going to give you an idea for what was going on. Yeah, I think it's true to the spirit, if not the letter um, of the of, of factual reality. But yeah, excellent, excellent stuff. Much recommended. So final thoughts on Manchester, Ryan? Ah, you know, it's always a, it's a, it's an interesting stop off. As I said, it's uh, it always felt to me like it was more uh, what what the what the British rock scene how they were interfacing with rave than it had to do with with rave itself. But I I love learning about it and I love going through all the music and and checking it all out and and seeing where these guys came from and where they go and and just kind of lamenting what could have happened if uh, a guy called Gerald hadn't been driven out of the scene by CBS and, uh, you know, other, other little stories like that are always endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we'll be back next week when we talk about chapter four, hardcore 
That's hardcore without the H, British style. Hardcore, you know the score. The second wave of Rave, 90 to 92. So looking forward to that, Ryan. Exciting. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to talk about Hardcore Rave, a sound that divided the acid house scene even as Rave exploded into even greater popularity in Britain from 1990 to 1992. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.